everyone, and welcome to A Bit More Complicated, the podcast where you can hear science-based discussions about important topics, issues, and problems in society and what we can do to make them better. I'm Dylan Selderman at Johns Hopkins University. And I'm Manny Galvan at UNC Chapel Hill. Today, we're finally getting around to discussing an important issue in the United States, abortion. We always planned on doing an episode on abortion, but given recent events, this topic shot up to the top of our list. On May 5th, there was a leak of an upcoming Supreme Court decision that Roe v. Wade, the 1973 decision that ensured that women have a right to have an abortion, would be overturned. This turn of events is the end result of many years of conservative efforts to illegalize abortion. Of course, the court decision doesn't itself illegalize abortion, but many conservative states are expected to pass legislation banning abortion soon after Roe v. Wade is struck down. We already live in a world where getting an abortion is quite difficult in certain states, but soon it'll be illegal in many states. To many folks, this is a huge victory. To many people, particularly women in conservative states who would use abortion services if needed, this is a scary turn of events. Dylan and I want to at least cover two topics on the show related to abortion. One, we want to cover the consequences of an abortion ban. What are the likely effects of the ban on people's mental health and economic circumstances? And two, what do people think about abortion and the impending state-level bans that are coming? We will have an episode on the consequences of abortion and the abortion ban, so stay tuned. But today we are joined by a guest to discuss the second topic, how do people think about abortion? Dr. Christian Jaskowski is the William L. Yarber Endowed Professor in Sexual Health at Indiana University Bloomington. She has written extensively on the topic of public opinions on abortion. Dr. Jaskowski, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Do you want to share a little bit more about yourself and your other lines of research with our audience? I'm a professor in public health at Indiana University, and my background is in uh, sexual and reproductive health. This project, or the work related to abortion attitudes, stems from a large project I've been working on since about 2017 with a, with a big team, and I also study other topics like sexual violence and consent. Yeah, thank you so much for being with us. So since the leak of the Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, many have argued that this decision runs counter to the views of the majority of Americans. These headlines often follow from polling about the topic. However, the framing of these articles is often binary between supporting abortion versus not. In a 2021 paper, you and your authors argued that public opinion is a bit more complicated than that. Can you explain the kinds of complexity people feel about abortion? Absolutely. One of the big impetuses for the, the project that I mentioned that we've been working on is that we think public opinion could do a little better in terms of addressing some of the nuance and complexity and attitudes. Complexity from our kind of perspective could be that different circumstances or contexts influence people's attitudes. So that could be the circumstances surrounding the pregnancy or the outcomes associated with the childbirth or other other contextual factors. It could also be dimensions through which we might consider abortion opinions. So things like, is should abortion be legal versus do people think abortion is moral? Um, so these broader dimensions uh, also kind of introduce some, some aspects of complexity. The way that I see abortion often being framed, is, as you mentioned, is very polarized. 
you support it or you don't, you're pro-life or you're pro-choice, but really a lot of people fall in that, that middle area where there's a lot more nuance. So, so it seems to me that there are a variety of different groups and some of which are more complex in their thinking about abortion and some of which aren't. Uh, and I think this is in your paper too, but it also just kind of coincides with our perception of these issues, I think, that there are extremists who mm-hmm. kind of, and I'm using that not in a pejorative sense, but just like people who have very strong opinions who feel like abortion should be 100% legal all the time. And then there's other people who think it should be 100% banned in every state and n- nobody should be able to get one. And then there are, it seems like a middle a group of people in the middle who have a lot of complexity about the feelings. Could you describe more who is more likely to express complexity? Mm-hmm. Yeah, most people actually fall into that middle category. You do have people on the extreme, depending on the dimension, let's say legality, like you mentioned. There's a small percentage who say legal in every circumstance, um, a small percentage who say illegal in every circumstance. People who fall in the middle tend to have all demographic characteristics, women and men, different race, ethnic groups. There's some characteristics like people who endorse the Bible as the literal word of God. So we might say the Bible literalists tend to fall on one extreme being more anti-abortion or opposed to abortion. People with higher education tend to have more permissive views thinking, and by higher education, I mean more years in school. So more advanced degrees tend to have um, more permissive views towards abortion. Religiosity is, is a factor that tends to be ascribed to anti-abortion perspectives or pro-life perspectives. And I, I, I don't actually want to conflate those identities, those labels with, with attitudes. That's something that also introduces a bit more complication. So we can talk more about that if you'd like, but actually the, the re- religiosity can be associated more with anti-abortion attitudes, but that even can vary based on, depending on the type of denomination, the way that you're measuring religiosity, so maybe religious attendance or denomination, those factors um, matter. And you see, for example, that that can also cut across other demographic characteristics like race. For example, Protestants, white Protestants tend to be more anti-abortion and Black Protestants tend to be a little more permissive in terms of attitude. So so mixing together all of these demographic characteristics, it makes it a little bit difficult to sort of parse out subgroups, but there's there's a lot of ways in which people's attitudes are complex across characteristics. That's very interesting. Can you, can you say a little bit more about that? So why would there be this intersection between religiosity and race? It's a good question. I think that that actually comes a little bit back to the Bible literalist characteristic that I mentioned. So thinking that the Bible is the literal word of God or identifying as a Bible literalist tends to be associated more with people who identify as evangelical. And those denominations tend to comprise more people who are, are white. And so I think that has a big part to play in terms of how we parse religion or religiosity and race. That makes sense. And and so you mentioned a bunch of different groups and we have some groups that are more extreme or more or more dead set on how they feel about this issue. Other groups, the majority of people who are more complex. And then on the other side, well, you have that those extremes on both sides of the issue, I guess. And mm-hmm. so I'm curious, have these groups changed in their level of complexity uh, over time? Yeah, we've seen some change in terms of complexity, although slight. And another group I should have mentioned before, political affiliation sometimes corresponds with Republicans being more anti-abortion, Democrats being more supportive of abortion. Now that could have manifested because of the ways in which the parties have evolved. But even within Republicans and Democrats, there's there's nuance in terms of people's beliefs about abortion. But getting to the point of how things have changed over time, 
um, certain religious denominations and Republicans have actually become more complex over time from our assessment of the general social survey data, which is one of the most robust current assessments of, of national opinions of abortion in the United States. So we see over time, those two demographics have, have become a little bit more complex and then complementary, the non-denomination or not identifying as a religious uh, with a religious denomination have become less complex over time. Although I'll, I'll say those, those changes are slight over the last about 50 years that uh, the General Social Survey has been asking about abortion. Is that in part because conservatives and religious people had been like very staunch anti-abortion and they're becoming less so? Is that the increased complexity on that side? That's kind of what is reflected in our findings in the sense that we're seeing more support across diverse situations. So with the General Social Survey, there are six specific circumstances that are asked and then a seventh item that asks about any reason, uh, someone having an abortion for any reason. And so when you think about when we use those circumstances, we saw people, Republic, you know, those, those demographic groups, Republicans, um, as an example, becoming more indicating that more of those circumstances that they found abortion to be acceptable under more of those circumstances over time compared with a couple decades ago. That's very interesting because we, I guess we see the pro-life movement in general or the anti-abortion movement to be very powerful. I mean, right now they're, they're, it's coming to fruition, the overturning of Roe v. Wade. And at the same time, it sounds like more people that are have been on that side historically are kind of shifting towards a more nuanced position. Yeah, there's this like disconnection between what the people in power are doing versus what the voters want. Do you do you agree that there is that kind of disconnect? It seems like what's happening on a like a high political level is not reflecting the will of the people on the at the at the voter level. Well, now this is drawing on some work that admittedly I ha- like my team and I have not done, but that I've read from other groups and I do see that disconnect make sense when you look at saliency of abortion. Abortion seems to be a very important, when you ask people, is abortion, or when you ask people, what are important issues with regard to voting? People will rank a number of issues as being very important or being important, abortion among those. But when you ask people to rank abortion relative to other issues, abortion tends to fall to the bottom of the list for more progressive identifying people or Democrats and falls and comes, rises to the top for conservatives, particularly the highly conservative or very conservative identifying Mm. people. So although there may be some of that complexity over time among some Republicans, when you consider the uh, most extreme, and like you said, I don't mean that in a pejorative way, I mean that in a ideological way of thinking, when you have the most extreme conservatives saying that abortion is one of the most salient issues, they're generally anti-abortion, and that I think helps explain why we have this disconnect and why you might see support politically for more anti-abortion legislation and more diffusion of salience among several social issues, abortion one of them, but many social issues among Democrats or liberal identified people. I know you've done some research about how polling will get different results when the issue is framed as Roe versus Wade compared to legalized abortion. So what, what kinds of findings do you see in when, when you examine the question that way? I think that's absolutely true. And abortion itself is a complicated issue, in my opinion, to ask about in terms of surveys. But then Roe v. Wade on top of that is even more complicated because some people might not know what Roe v. Wade even pertains to. We see from some of our work, and this is backed up by Gallup, 
excuse me, by Pew and other uh, polling organizations that about 60 to 70 percent of people know that abortion, that Roe v. Wade pertains to abortion. So a, a fair chunk of people don't know that this case pertains to abortion. So asking about Roe v. Wade in a succinct survey question is really challenging. Asking about whether abortion should be legal also has its challenges. And so kind of trying to make sense of those together can yield different results and people understanding what Roe v. Wade means, what upholding or overturning that decision means. Our work, we've found that some people think that if you uh, overturn the decision in Roe v. Wade, that abortion will become illegal everywhere. And while in some states, abortion may become illegal because of trigger laws, that doesn't, that's not what overturning the decision means. Overturning the decision means that goes, the decision goes back to the states. Asking more about legality can have variation in terms of people thinking about whether abortion is currently legal or illegal. So there's a lot of unique complexities in asking those different ways and trying to make sense of putting it together is quite challenging. Yeah, I'm curious, like, if there is, there's a ton of polling right now out there, mm -hmm. and you can see headline after headline about how the, most Americans don't support the overturn of Roe v. Wade, etc., uh, or support abortion. There's just a bunch of that type of data out there. I'm curious if you're familiar, what, or, or you're aware of, like, what framing results in the most support versus what framing results in the least support? Like, is saying, do you support Roe v. Wade being overturned results in the most support for abortion? Or is it saying legalizing abortion or illegalizing abortion? Like, what are the words that, because when we're looking at the polls, I'd like to know, and I think our audience would like to know, uh, the way that they ask this question is responsible for some large amount of why mm -hmm. there's a lot of support or very little support. I think asking about um, do you support Roe v. Wade, I think tends to yield a lot of support. Um, and often I'll say that that polling organizations include a brief description of what Roe v. Wade means or, or that it pertains to abortion. Although trying to summarize a, a complicated Supreme Court decision in a, a sentence or two is quite challenging. So when you look at those sorts of, if you look at those individual polling questions, you'll see generally a lot of support. But I think a better way to sort of determine support for the framework of Roe v. Wade would be to look at a more comprehensive assessment of attitudes. And so to that end, something that our group has been doing is looking at various ways of assessing abortion attitudes across context and across dimension. Um, and we have found that in terms of answering that question, do people support Roe v. Wade or, or support upholding Roe v. Wade? We find, I think, that there's general support for the, the actual decision. And I think this may disappoint abortion advocates, probably on both sides of the abortion movement. But Roe v. Wade sort of established was established a trimester framework and suggests that abortion throughout the pregnancy, you know, there's there's limitations on abortion. That's sort of what the, the, the decision says, that there can be limitations put on abortion. And that sort of corresponds with people's attitudes because a lot of people don't want to see abortion throughout the entire pregnancy, although a lot of people don't want to see abortion being outright banned, and that may be what occurs in many states in the U.S. if this um, leaked decision is what actually is what the actual decision reflects. And so what m more, I guess, accurate to people's opinions is sort of this middle ground that, that Roe v. Wade operates under, that there's access to abortion, at least at some point during the pregnancy, 
but not all out, or the possibility for there to be not all out uh, access throughout the pregnancy. Yeah, I can see how that could be disappointing for sure. Like a lot of people support, basically, a lot of people support Roe v. Wade, and I can see how that could be disappointing to advocates on the anti-abortion side. I think a lot of pro-abortion or pro-choice advocates would probably say that given that 92% of abortions occur within the first 13 weeks, the fact that there's a trimester situation set up by Roe v. Wade is not that big of a deal because the vast majority of abortions will occur prior to any of the Roe v. Wade issues emerging. Um, So for me, I guess I'm like, that's great. I guess if you're like a, uh, you should be able to abort up to the last minute abortion supporter, then you might find that disappointing. But, but yeah. Yeah, you're, I think that's a good point that abortion, most abortions occur in that first trimester, which would be fairly consistent with public opinion that people support abortion early in the pregnancy. Um, I think that sort of any limitation, whether it be because of weeks gestation or various circumstances, maybe not necessarily aligned with pro-choice or reproductive justice advocates perspective. Yeah. And so I uh, I have another, I was reading some of your other research and it made me think of the information deficit model. So I'm going to take a little detour and then we'll come back to abortion. People often make political decisions that seem counter to the evidence. So this is often the case with like things like climate change, evolution versus creationism, COVID-19. Often science communicators, which, you know, Dylan and I are trying to be and, and you're being right now for with uh, with being on the podcast, too. We often think of what's called the information deficit model, which assumes that gaps between scientists like ourselves and the public are the result of lacking information or lacking knowledge on the issue. And if people just could fill in that gap of knowledge, they would be right with us in the same set of beliefs. Uh, In 2021, you co-authored a paper on how knowledge about Roe v. Wade and abortion is related to being pro-life or being pro-choice. I should also say that a lot of people criticize the information deficit model, and so it's interesting to see it moved into this context of pro-life versus pro-choice and knowledge about Roe v. Wade versus abortion. I think this is a place where a lot of people, um, science communicators, don't think of the information deficit model in in this context, but I think it's interesting that you're, you're studying it here. Can you set up this paper for us and help us understand what you found? Absolutely. So we did use these terms pro-life and pro-choice, which we call abortion identity labels. Sometimes people and the media conflate those labels with attitudes. They may say pro-choice to refer to to support for abortion and pro-life to refer to opposition to abortion. And while that may be generally true in that pro-choice people tend to be more supportive of abortion in more circumstances um, and vice versa with pro-life identifying people, there's a lot of complexity or, you know, to it's, it's a bit more complicated than that to, to quote <laughs> <Cha-ching>. you <all. laughs> Love it. But, <laughs> but in that particular study, what we were looking at was knowledge about Roe v. Wade and whether having more accurate knowledge or what I'll call increased knowledge was associated with abortion sentiment. Um, and by sentiment, I mean support for upholding Roe v. Wade. And what we found was that knowledge did have an effect. It was, well, knowledge was moderated by these abortion identity groups. So what we found was that increased knowledge resulted in more permissive sentiment for people who identified as pro-choice, as neither pro-choice nor pro-life, and as both pro-choice and pro-life. So increased knowledge resulted in more permissive attitudes, but there was really no change among pro-life identifying people. So they were sort of 
stat or you know is consistent, stable in their in pro-life identifying people are stable in their sentiments towards Roe v. Wade disregarding their baseline knowledge. This idea that you know knowledge may change attitudes may hold true for some subgroups, particularly these, these certain abortion identity label subgroups, but but not for others, not for um, in this case pro-life identifying. I see. So yeah, this is very similar, I think, to the other findings of the information deficit model. It's just that it's not the issue is not a lack of information, because if you give people more information, they'll just dig in if they already have a pre predetermined belief on a particular subject. I guess it's the inversion of the facts don't care about your feelings. It doesn't matter what the facts are, really, if you have a certain feeling or perspective on something, you kind of will stick to it, even if you learn something new. So that that it seems consistent with like what we find with the information deficit model in general, which is that you kind it's not all that effective if you've already dug into a position. At least for in this case, at least for people who are identifying as pro-life, they were not really changing, but the other groups did. And I think it's notable that people who identify as both or neither responded in ways similar to to pro-choice identifying people which That's hasn't been the case yeah. in some of our other studies yeah and do you have a sense of the sizes of those groups like people who are staunch pro-choice i'm sorry staunch pro-life are probably not the majority right this is a small percentage of the overall population most people are probably in the middle group like you said before but they're neither fully pro-choice or fully pro-life um and then i imagine the the staunch pro-choice people are like they're probably a bigger group than the pro pro life. I'm not sure. Do you have a sense? Yeah. Of that? Not the exact numbers, but just the sense of the relative size. The there is definitely more more people in that particular study who identified as pro choice than pro life. But again, I would just sort of caution about conflating those late identifying with those labels and attitudes right. because people identify with those labels who who actually hold a range of beliefs. Right. In another study that we have that's under review right now, we evaluated people who identify as both pro-life and pro-choice. And in that particular study, with regard to measurement, we asked them to um, indicate the degree to which they identified as pro-life or pro-choice in separate questions. So they could put on a six-point scale how much they felt pro-life, how much they identified with being pro-choice. And we did find the the mean, be the, the average that people tended to identify more with being pro-life with that label. And yet we had variation in why people provided those dual endorsements, as well as circumstances under which they thought abortion would be, they would support legal abortion. So it is, again, very complicated when we're trying to tease out um, some of these aspects of attitudes. We know a lot of people are unaware of the difficulties involved in getting an abortion. For example, many women may struggle to pay for an abortion or they'll face very harmful stigma. About half of women encounter protesters at abortion clinics and face other kinds of obstacles. And we saw that you've done a little bit of research on people's perceptions and misperceptions about abortion access. So can you tell us what are some other misperceptions about abortion? So that was a really interesting study in which we asked people about perceived ease or difficulty in getting an abortion. And kind of like I was saying with the pro-life, pro-choice definitions, people's perceptions of how easy or difficult it was to get an abortion really varied quite substantially. People had a variety of reasons for why they thought abortion was, was easy to obtain, more difficult to obtain. And this sort of persisted across geographic locations where we may have hypothesized that in certain states, 
you know, where there is more legislative restrictions on abortion, they think it's more difficult to get an abortion. But for some people, for example, to answer your question, people might say, well, I had to drive two hours, I had to have a waiting period. And they might not perceive that as being difficult because maybe they're living in a rural area where they have to drive about that far to get their general health care. Or they might think, you know, some people think that abortion is a very serious decision. People might not realize the extent that that women actually do consider deeply the decision prior to getting an abortion. So they might think, well, having a 24-hour or 72-hour waiting period is appropriate to give people the time to think without, you know, thinking that is an extreme burden, although for some people it may be an extreme burden. Alternatively, in other states like California, where there might be more um, accessibility in general, you might be living in a geographic location where it's actually still fairly inaccessible or difficult to get an abortion. So so we thought that geographic location was going to be a big driver, and it, it really wasn't when we looked at some of those qualitative responses and how people thought about abortion. It really depended on some of those personal beliefs um, about abortion really boiled down to a little bit more of that than other factors that we thought were going to be a little bit more relevant. How did these perceptions about the difficulties around abortion influence people's support or not support of having abortion rights for women? Like, did did people who perceive a lot of difficulty also support women's rights to choose? Were they more likely to be pro-choice? Is like, is seeing the difficulty part of, is it kind of one of those situations where you have to see a problem to want to solve it? Yeah. It's a good question. I I think it really varied quite a bit. I think there was the the people's attitudes corresponded with the nature or the sentiment of the responses they provided. And so to give you an example, some people who had more anti-abortion sentiments would say things like having, you know, a, a waiting period or having to drive several hours is not too difficult to end a life. It's not an overwhelming burden. Whereas people who are and, and so and they might think that it's easy to get an abortion because this is a a big decision and you're ending a life. Whereas people who are more supportive of abortion um, might recognize the challenges associated with with those travels. And in their responses, they might have said, well, it's limiting autonomy to have to do all of these, um, to jump through all these hoops. And so it was really, I don't think it it was well reflected in the quantitative questions about ease or difficulty, but it came out a lot more in the sentiments and the ways people expressed their perceptions of the ease or difficulty that demonstrated their support or opposition to abortion and how they how they conceptualized abortion, like I said, either as maybe an autonomous decision for that, that women should have a right to make decisions about their body and their bodily autonomy, and other people might um, privilege more fetal rights and, and believe that abortion is, um, is ending a life. And, and those things actually influence their perceptions of ease or difficulty of um, abortion in their uh, state. I see. So there weren't big gaps in the perception of difficulty, but there were differences in how they made attributions about that difficulty. So in other words, both sides are seeing difficulty, but on the pro-life side, they're like, but there should be those obstacles. Those obstacles are good because they're protecting unborn fetuses. Mm-hmm. And for the pro-choice side, they see those obstacles as unne- unnecessarily constructed by conservative lawmakers to limit women's autonomy. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. And there's also still, too, some people saying, well, uh, even people who are supportive of abortion say, well, waiting periods, you know, maybe appropriate or not too much of a burden. It gives people a chance to think. And, we, and you know, that's we can talk about whether that's actually right. the case or actually necessary, but these might be perceptions people hold. Right. It's like you said, that people 
most people are somewhere in the middle. So even mm-hmm. if you're like pro-choice or call yourself pro-choice, you'll you'll still say, but maybe these are like reasonable obstacles to get women to think more about the decision before they make it. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. Now, uh, kind of along these lines, I think there's some amount of, in, in these research findings that we're discussing, there's some amount of, I guess, thinking about, people thinking about what this means for women whenever they are getting these abortions. And I, I you've done some other research on how empathy for women influences people's feelings about abortion. So what makes people more empathetic towards pregnant women? And how does empathy influence support for abortion rights? I think people tend to be more empathetic toward abortion based on the circumstances under which a person finds themselves pregnant. And so certain situations that statistically are tend to be less common reasons people seek abortion, like if a person experienced rape, or if there are severe severe fetal anomalies, or if the pregnancy may result in health endangerment for the pregnant person, those tend to be situations in which people have more acceptance or maybe some more empathy for the situations. People tend to have less tolerance for situations in which pregnancy is perceived as quote, like irresponsible. For example, if a woman doesn't want any more children or if a person was not using contraceptive methods and those tend to yield less tolerance for abortion, people I think tend to set up parameters under which they might tolerate abortion or or be less tolerable of abortion. Ultimately still, I would argue that people, despite uncomfortable or dislike for abortion, They still don't want to see it go away and still want it to be present in some fashion. They tolerate it under certain conditions or parameters, even if they're not thrilled about abortion or may think that it's immoral. They still don't want to see it go away because people tend to not want to interfere in other people's decision making. Yeah, that makes sense. I I want to revisit a part of our chat from earlier when we talked about individual variables that stand out as predictors of people's attitudes toward abortion, like religiosity. But I like to talk a bit more about gender, especially since abortion access is often framed as a women's rights issue. I'm aware of some research showing that women tend to be slightly more supportive of abortion access compared to men, but the difference is pretty small. And that suggests that many, many men support access to abortion and many women are opposed to abortion access. I've seen some speculation about why many women would favor restrictions on abortion in America. Some folks have suggested that there's that this may stem from a kind of internalized misogyny or some kind of ego protection mechanism. I know it sounds very Freudian, and I don't think there's much evidence for this, but I wanted to run it by you just in case you think there's any validity to this idea. And similarly, I've heard some suggest that women who oppose abortion access are envious of other women who have more career success or less burdened by traditional gender roles for women, like being stay-at-home moms or homemakers. Again, I don't think there's much evidence for this, but I wanted to run it by you just in case I've missed something in the research. Yeah, it's a great question. And and I think interesting in a lot of our work and, and national polls, there is very little difference when you compare women with men in terms of abortion attitudes broadly. There's studies here or there which might find some differences. Our work that my team and I have done, we have not really found very many gender differences. Often that turns out to not be a significant predictor. But I can cite some studies that are a bit older, one from the early 2000s in which the researchers looked at men compared with, quote, stay-at-home 
women or stay-at-home wives or mothers and then working women. And they found a distinction in attitudes between those two, those two groups of women with working women being more, working outside the, the public sphere, I should say, working in the public sphere, being more progressive or having more um, permissive attitudes towards abortion. It's consistent kind of with what you were alluding to. And then there are some other interesting studies, uh, not in the United States, but we could perhaps draw on some of that because it's from, I believe, New Zealand or Australia, um, in which they examined those similar questions I mentioned from the general social survey, and they compared those with different forms of sexism. So there's two forms of sexism, benevolent sexism and, and um, hostile sexism, and hostile is some more overt type of sexism where people are, you know, might traditionally think of sexism. They think of overt being rude to women, sort of saying misogynistic comments and so forth. And benevolent sexism is more about chivalry or they need men are protective and women need men to be protective of them. So when you look at those types of sexism, there is a relationship with abortion attitudes with people being endorsing those different types of sexism as being more anti-abortion. And that falls a little bit along gender lines, women who endorse some of that benevolent sexism being more anti-abortion. So there's some of that that could be at play here, these underlying factors that might suggest some gender differences in, in these attitudes. But like I said, a lot of our work, we haven't found very many, very many differences in gender and people being generally, you know, as supportive of our post disregarding gender. And I would say some of that has to do with some of these other parameters that people set up that those are bigger predictors than than something like gender. So things like the context or the dimensions seem to be stronger predictors right. than gender. They, they seem to matter more. I will say that a lot of men in some of our qualitative studies talk about thinking that men should be involved in the pregnancy decision. This is a bit more anecdotal because I haven't run any numbers on this. These were from interviews that, that we conducted. Men talked about thinking they should be involved or that men should be involved in and that's, you know, a lot of men are involved in pregnancy decisions, often women involved and men involved in the pregnancy in their decision making, but that is, is a bit anecdotal. And I'd say also women think that men should be involved too. So I don't know how different that is. I think men were more forceful in discussing that in the interviews. And, and a lot of people also talked about this being, uh, having a bigger impact on women and, and women's bodies. So there's, you know, this is a, this is a gendered issue. But the way that uh, women and men may think about abortion sort of varies. And unfortunately, we don't have very good data on people who are non-binary in a lot of our studies and a lot of national polls, because a lot of that tends to be nationally representative and, and the sample size tends to, be, tends to be quite low for non-binary folks. So we don't have a good sort of pulse on, on attitudes in, in that way. Yeah, I would imagine yeah. that like trans non-binary folks are probably more progressive just based on their identity and progressive movements being supportive of their rights and their ability to be the kind of person that they want to be. And so they probably support abortion more, but yeah, without the data, we don't know the answer to that question, I guess. And that seems to make sense uh, if I was speculating or I am speculating, um, but yeah, unfortunately I don't have the data specifically to draw on, but that, that makes sense to me too. If the Supreme Court justices were listening to us right now, is there a message you'd like to them to get from the research on people's attitudes toward abortion that they may not be aware of and we have it on high authority that they do listen to the show so <laughs> well <laughs> that that is uh that's a big question so so if they're listening i think that 
relying on public opinion could be one approach to making to making these decisions and public opinion does seem to support some access to abortion somewhat consistent with the framework in Roe v. Wade like I said before not all access throughout the entire length of the pregnancy but not all but not complete restriction having that flexibility seems to align with people's attitudes now where you want to make that mark I believe Roe v. Wade made that mark around viability which that is a moving target as technology progresses but Mm -hmm. the point is there is there is a point at which people think that through which people think abortion should be accessible whether they like abortion or not whether they think it's moral or not people still think it should be accessible or legal and this decision will likely result in many states not having abortion or banning abortion and so it is uh questionable if that will align with public opinion um and therefore if they're suggesting that their decision is based in part in public opinion i would encourage them to dig a little deeper beyond some pro-life or pro-choice type dichotomy questions i have a final question that i end every interview with imagine you're in another dimension looking at a panel of dials that control human behavior There are dials that control small things like how often people cut their grass. And there are dials that control really big things like the rate at which cancer exists in society. Do you move a dial? If so, which one? How much do you move it and why? Related to abortion or to... Anything you like. (laughs) This is a super tough question. (laughs) I guess if, if I could control life through a system of dials i think everyone has a different perception of what will bring them happiness and i'd like to control that in the sense that we could increase increase people's perceptions or increase people's experiences of happiness so that you have more opportunities for more people to experience a fulfilling and happy life whether that be you know because of their jobs or their income or their appearance or whatever and I know that's not about abortion at all, but <laughs> I no, guess that's no. what I would say. Fantastic answer. Yeah. So basically there's like a dial that, that changes your opportunity for happiness and you just dial that up a little bit. I guess if I'm, if I'm thinking globally, what'll help the most people, I'd say that situations that could increase general happiness, because it can mean anything, you know, some people would prefer to be really rich. Some people would prefer to be really attractive or whatever. And, uh, Give the people what they want. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds good. Okay. I I actually uh, teach. Oh, no, please. I was going to say, I I actually teach a course on the psychology of happiness and well-being. And that's, that's the great answer. I'm going to share that with my students. (laughs) I think I really hadn't, that was, that threw me for the biggest loop. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for being here with us. Yeah. Thank you. And where can our audience learn more about you if they want to read some of what you've written or follow you on social media? anything like that. You can find out more information um, about our project at, at IU underscore dams, that's D-A-M-S-S underscore team, or you can follow me at, at K-N Jaskowski. And our website for our project where you can get more information is dams, and that's D-A-M-S-S dot publichealth dot indiana dot edu. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for listening. Join us next time on A Bit More Complicated. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe to our podcast, leave a friendly rating, and share with a friend. 
If you have a reaction you'd like to share with us, please find us on Twitter at abitmorepod or send an email to morecomplicatedpod at gmail.com.